kids are dismissed and open your Bibles to the book of Job. If you open up in the Old Testament and you're in Psalms, you want to go to the left a little bit to the book of Job. That's where we will be in time. Um, We are in our summer series called Because You Asked. It is a series, uh, we're taking a a break from the book series. We just finished 1 and 2 Peter, taking a break this summer. In the fall, we'll we'll launch into the study of the book of Acts. Um, So if if you're not familiar with the book, please read it over the summertime. It would be great. Uh, There's there's, uh, 28 chapters in the book. So if you want to read through that, and we're going to launch into that in September and walk through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter is what we like to do here. Expository preaching, kind of knowing the Word and um, studying it together. But we took a break this summer and we asked the congregation to send us questions to the pastoral staff on, on questions of faith and questions of the Scripture that you would like to answer. We made it really clear. Don't send me questions about fixing dishwashers and lawnmowers because I have no idea. Can't answer those questions for you. But about our faith and about the Scriptures. So far we've answered two of those questions. What is blasphemy and the sin that leads to death? That was our first sermon. The second one was sent in uh, to us. Was, what does it mean to trust God? Today we're dealing with the question that was sent in on the suffering of man and the sovereignty of God. The question was, basically, why does God let bad things happen? You know, behind that question, uh, there's been centuries of people, philosophers, that have asked that question. Be it uh, Epicurus a couple hundred years before Christ, be it David Hume, he's a Scottish philosopher. And the question behind the question really is this. Either God is good and not powerful and can't stop evil, right? God is good and not powerful and can't stop evil, or God is all-powerful and doesn't stop evil and therefore He's not good. Either God is omnipotent, powerful, but really careless, doesn't care a whole lot about what's going on, or he's, uh, he's, he, he cares a lot, He loves us, but He is impotent. That's really the question. I would like to tell you that when we're done today, we're going to have that answer, that question answered for you. Unfortunately, uh, the question has been debated. We're going to see some things I believe the Scripture teaches us, uh, but we're going to walk away with some questions as well. It's taken thousands of years. People a lot smarter than me are still debating this subject, probably thousands, not millions of pages written on it about that question. But my hope today is that we look at the Scriptures and begin to process some of the deeper things of God. My hope is that at the end of our time together that we would love Him and trust Him and worship Him in the midst of our suffering. I have lots of quests, excuse me, I have lots of, of books if you're looking for books to read on the subject. We're going to be dealing with all kinds of stuff this summer. The questions that you ask predestination, the preservation of the saints, eternal security, all the easy stuff that we could just glide through this summer, not. Um, so if you have questions, send them to me. I'll give you materials to read. It's not one sermon. It's not one book. It's not one perspective. It takes months of reading and studying the great things of God. It's worth it. Everyone in this room is able to study and to grow in the deeper knowledge of God because if I can, I'm not smarter than anybody here. I'm not at the place of knowing completely the deep things of God. I'm not saying that. But I'm studying the things. I'm learning more about the character and the nature of God. And I want to encourage you to do that as well. 
I want to encourage you to do that as well. It is, it is rich. It is, it is deep. It has helped me to grow in the knowledge and the grace of Jesus Christ. No one in this room that is unable to do that. So as we embrace this very hard topic, we'll look at Job 1 and 2. But I want to start with some preliminary, foundational things that I want to say that I believe is very biblical. And I want you to follow me on here, okay? And I want to do it first with a story. So we're talking about suffering of man and the sovereignty of God according to the Scripture. And I want to give you a story. Years ago, I think it was 2006 or 2008, I went to Minneapolis, Minnesota, to a conference that was held there by John Piper. A title, the, the conference was called The Supremacy of Christ in a Postmodern Culture. We're going from a modern culture to a postmodern culture, and guys like Mark Driscoll, Tim Keller, had all gathered to this conference teaching on uh, supremacy of Christ in a postmodern culture. One of the men that was there that spoke, his name was Bodie Bachman from Texas. I'll never forget it. And... He talked about his, his task was the supremacy of Christ in truth in a postmodern culture. And he tells the story of the time that he went on a, a campus on a university. I, didn't, I don't think he said which one. But he was on the campus. He likes to go to campuses and talk about the Lord. And he was uh, questioned by one of the philosophy students there. And the question was, if you believe in God, he's asking uh, Dr. Bachman, if you believe in God, who is omnipotent, and omnibenevolent, all-loving, all-powerful, how do you reconcile the issue of theodicy? Theodicy is the vindication of the goodness of God and justice and evil, just what we're talking about. His first response is funny. He says, so I see that you're a your first-time student, you know, a first-semester student in philosophy, right? The guy's like, yeah, how did you know? He said, because if you hadn't been, if you, hadn't been you would have just said, look, if God is so powerful and good, why does bad stuff happen? But obviously, he was into philosophy. He wanted to sound good. So Vadi said, listen, I'm not going to answer that question until you ask it correctly. And the student said, what do you mean, ask it correctly? It, it's my question. But he said, no, no, you have to answer correctly. And the guy said, look, I've been working at this for a really long time. It's my question. The student said, look, don't, don't tell me how to do it. And Bodhi said, listen, I'll tell you what. I will answer your question when you ask it properly. He said, when you look me in the eyes and ask me this, how on earth can a holy and righteous God know what I did and what I thought and what I said yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night? Ask it that way and we can talk. But until you ask it that way, you don't understand the issue. Until you ask it that way, you believe that the problem is somewhere out there. You believe that the problem is somewhere out there. You believe that in and of yourselves, we deserve nothing but, you know, blessings. That, that somehow, in and of yourselves, nothing but the wrath of Almighty God. When you ask that question, why, why, oh God, does your judgment and your wrath tarry? When you ask it that question, you understand the question. Your way is the supremacy of man. What I'm saying is the supremacy of God. Then you'll know the issue. I bring that story up because as we talk about suffering and the sovereignty of God, I want us to see two things. One is your worldview, and everybody has one. Your worldview will have a huge impact on the way you view life, particularly how you approach suffering, your worldview. If a man is the center of the universe, deserving blessings in and of himself, then suffering will be very hard to process. Unless we see our sin, our, our helplessness, our deserved wrath, coupled with the fact that God's greatest good, His ultimate and, and 
pinnacle thing, pinnacle of all that he does is for his own glory, for the manifestation of his own holiness, for his moral perfection, then you will find, you will not find joy in the midst of suffering. Depending on your worldview. Secondly, if you cannot and I cannot reconcile some things of the infinite mind of God, let's not be arrogant and think just because I can't reconcile the suffering of man and, 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 the, and the suffering of God to, to the degree in which I you know, understand it all, let's not be arrogant to think that it can't be reconciled. See, it, it's arrogant to say it can't be reconciled. I can't figure it out. Therefore, it must not be reconciled. The Bible tells us that God works all things out for His glory. He doesn't say God takes evil and makes it good. Evil is evil. Sin is sin. Paul says He causes all things work for the good. But when we say, well, I don't see that, we're acting as if we're smarter than the infinite, eternal God. So we have to come to the place saying, you know what, just because I can't figure it out, me and my puny little brain, doesn't mean it can't be figured out. You understand what I'm saying? We've we got to get away from that because there's a mystery. There's a mystery. Third, which is important, I think piggybacks this whole thing, is we can't approach the issue of suffering and the sovereignty of God completely with a philosophical mindset. We have to realize as we approach this that we're not going to understand anything. I'm not saying we shouldn't study. I'm not saying we shouldn't read. I'm not saying we shouldn't contemplate the, the, the things of God. But what I am saying is God has given us His Word. And if God has given us His Word, this is the, the revelation of God. This is a, a, a description, a, a revealing Word of who God is. There's going to be mystery. Do we really think that God is revealing to us some of His nature and His character, and we're going to figure it all out. Isaiah was, Isaiah was right. He said, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither our ways your ways. For as high as the heavens and high as the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and your, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. There's going to be some mystery. You, we, have, you know, we have to get over that. I, I have no idea what God is doing. When my friend David, leaving four children, one nine years old, behind, died of brain cancer back in Easter time. I don't have an answer. I'm not going to try to make one up. I'm not going to try to make one up. Because sometimes, you know what? I don't know is the right answer. I don't know. Think of it like this way. If God is all-powerful and He's all-knowing, and He is, there's things within His nature and with His character that we won't understand. It's a mystery. Sometimes, now hear me. Sometimes I think what we do, I do, we do, is if we can't completely comprehend something, if we can't, um, you know, have a complete explanation which, is, which fits our life or fits our way of thinking, if we don't have an explanation, we use it, we use it as, a, as, a, as a kind of like a smokescreen not to say, I'm just going to trust in God. You know, we have a rebellious nature. We don't want to trust. We want to trust in ourselves. We want to trust in other things. And we say, you know what? I don't have an explanation. Therefore, I'm not going to trust in God. So we use it as a smoke screen. We know that God created us in His image and likeness. We know that God created a perfect world with no sin and no evil. We know that He did it not because He was dependent, that He needed us. We know that God is always totally satisfied in Himself and, and He created out of His goodness, out of His completeness. 
He's totally satisfied in himself. He's not like God woke up one day and said, you know what, I, I'm really going to create something because I'm kind of lonely. So I'm going to create people to worship me. And that's going to make me feel better. God is full and satisfied in all that he is. We know that God created not out of his loneliness, but he did choose to create. He, he, which only is known to him why, but out, it was out of his fullness that he created us in his image and his likeness. And only known to him, he permitted and allowed sin to enter the world. But this we do know. We know that he created us and allowed sin to enter the world and exist, and he uses it to declare and to demonstrate his glory and his grace. And he's sovereign over that. Psalm 72, blessed be his holy name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So you say, how is that possible? How, how does God take suffering and evil and, and, in the world and how does He then bend it and use it to declare and to demonstrate His glory and His grace? The Gospel. The cross. The cross. The glory of God. That infinite value. The intrinsic greatness. His incalculable worth and worthiness shines most brightly and most fully at the cross. It's a manifestation of His justice against sin and His love for you. John Piper said it this way, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh to suffer and to die, and by that suffering and death to save undeserving sinners like you and me. This coming to suffer and die is the supreme manifestation of the greatness of the glory and the grace of God. The death of Jesus Christ is supreme supreme suffering in the highest, but it clearly shows and displays the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. He gets that from 2 Corinthians 4. So one of the aspects of suffering and the sovereignty of God is the gospel, is the cross. Jesus suffered, we benefit. And we'll get back to that uh, shortly. So it changes your worldview. Suffering will challenge your worldview. Is it a biblical worldview or is it your worldview? It's also a mystery. But lastly, I want to say as we get into this, is suffering is real. I know you're like, that was really theological. I don't know how long it took you up to get that. But to trust God in the midst of it does not take away the pain. Even when we hold dear, which I hope when we're done, we do, that God has a purpose in all that we do, it still hurts deeply. It still hurts deeply. Okay, losing a child, getting cancer, spouse walking out, parents disowning, car accidents, shootings, it hurts. And this may be a shock to you, but there are some Christians that keep telling themselves when they suffer, I'm not supposed to feel that way. If you don't feel the pain, the anguish, the arduous struggling of the soul, something else is going on in your life. You see somebody. When suffering comes, it's real, and we're going to see that. Um, in our text this morning. So, as we move forward in Job chapter 1, let me just define some things for you, okay? When you talk about the sovereignty of God, or God is sovereign, what does that mean? The sovereignty of God means that God has the power and the right, God has the power and the right and the authority to govern all things for His holy and wise purposes. He's reigning supremely, He is omnipotent over the world, and He is sovereign over it. Coupled with sovereign is God's providence. All right? Providence is the, is the outworking, the, the activity of God, where God preserves. The Bible talks about all things hold together for Him and by Him. 
The very breath we breathe is because God preserves creation. So He preserves, He provides, and He manages creation, working all things out in the wise and the eternal plans and purposes that He intended for our good and His glory. Okay? So in other words, His sovereignty is His right and reign to rule. His providence is how that's worked out in creation as He preserves and provides for it. So things that are going on. Okay, and we'll talk about verses in a minute. And the Bible says that even in God's sovereignty and in His providence, the working out of God, sin occurs. There is sin. There is brokenness in the world. Look around. But it doesn't stop God's sovereignty. Jerusalem, Peter's preaching, day of Pentecost, chapter 2. Listen to this, chapter 2, verse 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. He's preaching, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. You yourself know that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him at the hands of lawless men. Definite plan, foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. Peter puts it again in two chapters later in chapter 4 of Acts. He writes, the kings of earth, of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed as Jesus. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, God anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the Israelites, and then he says, notice, to do whatever your hand, your plan had predestined to take place. One more illustration. Joseph telling the story to his brothers after he was beaten, after he was sold into slavery, after he was sent to Egypt. He's telling this story to his brothers of what happened to him. And Joseph says this in Genesis 45. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So Joseph, Peter, Paul, the New Testament and the Old Testament shows us that the eternal decree of God, that which will take place, has everything to do with God's sovereignty and man's decision. They go side by side. So God, we know, is perfect and holy and just. There is no sin in Him. There is no darkness in Him. And God permits sin to take place and, and oversees it for His wise and His holy purposes. One more quote, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love this. He says, the same decree of God, which ordains the moral law, prohibits and punishes sin, also permits its occurrence. But it limits it and determines the precise channel to which it shall be confined and to the precise end to which it shall be directed. And he overrules, listen, and overrules its consequences for good. Now, we just went through Genesis. We looked at all of the life of Joseph and his brothers and all that took care of what happened to Joseph. All the evil that befalled him. But Joseph in chapter 50 was able to say, You, my brothers, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. To bring about the many people should be kept alive as they are today. Family, listen. Two absolute truths in scriptures if we're going to deal with suffering and the sovereignty of God. One, God is sovereign. We're going to look at scriptures in a, bit, in a minute. But one, God is sovereign. 
God is sovereign, and that includes over the evil and the wickedness that we see in our world. If it were not true, then he's either not good and he is good, or he's not sovereign and evil is running amok, and, and that can't be. God is sovereign. Many of you read the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren has insight into this. He writes, God has a purpose behind every problem. Regardless of the cause, none of your problems could happen without God's permission. Everything that happens to a child of God is father-filtered, and he intends to use it for good, even when Satan and others mean it for the bad. Because God is sovereignly in control, accidents are just incidents in God's good plan for you. There's a great designer, I love that, behind everything. Your life is not a result of random chance, fate, or luck. There's a master plan. His story is his story. God's pulling the strings. God is sovereign. But man is still responsible. And you say, wait a minute. If God is sovereign and He knows the beginning from the end and He is causing all things to work together for the good, then I can do what I want and I'm not responsible. Yes, you are. Judas, in a free and voluntary action, turned over Jesus to be crucified and he's held responsible for his sin. And yet God had a greater purpose in that plan. You say, well, I don't get that. Me either. But I'm not God. I'm just a mailman, right? I'm not God. Wayne Grudem, in his, and I recommend his systematic theology book, Wayne Grudem, he says very simply, God causes all things to happen. But he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices, choices that have a real and eternal result for which we are accountable. And exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and our significant choices, Scripture doesn't tell us. But rather than deny one, rather than deny one aspect or, or another aspect in attempt to be faithful to Scripture, there is both. You want to spend the rest of your life figuring all that out? Well, if God is sovereign over it and I'm responsible, I don't understand. You go right ahead. Bang your head against the wall. I don't know. But I know that there's a mystery. But I know that's exactly what the Scriptures teach. I believe by faith on what the Bible teaches. Turn to Job 1. Job chapter 1. In the book of Job, just so you know, the word why. You ever asked that question? Suffering? Disaster? Why? Over and over and over and over again in the book of Job. Why? He doesn't, you know, if you know, many of you know the book. There's not like no cute answer to it. There's no, there's no, I'll get over it kind of answer. There's struggling going on. He has his friends come. He, Job is struggling through this. His wife tells him what? Curse God and die. That's encouragement. Thank you, honey. Right? Suffering's not easy. And, 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 and there's hard questions. But I think when we look at Job, we'll spend a little time in Job, we'll see some rock-solid truth that we can stand on in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of, of hurt and, and glorify God. Okay? So first we'll look at the suffering of Job. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons, three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they 
would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. All right, a little brother and sister thing going on. It's nice. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This Job did continually. Okay, so we see, first thing, in the book of Job, that sometimes suffering is undeserved was not deserved in the sense of you didn't do it yourself. There are times that we suffer because we took out a gun and shot ourselves in the foot and did some stupid things, right? Like if you're spending all your money at OTB and you have nothing to eat, like you did that to yourself, okay? If you're, if you're out and you just want to, you know, use drugs all day long and you have nothing, you did that to yourself. If you want to walk out on your family and you want to sin against them and things fall apart around you, you did that to yourself. But here, the, 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 the author is showing us that Job's suffering, though, was, was, was an undeserved and unprovoked suffering. Job is described as blameless, upright, which means not perfect, means he's a man of integrity. He, he's a man who loves God. He, he shuns evil, the Bible says. The Bible says that he cares about his family. He's sacrificing for their sins that they haven't even committed. He's like, you know what, maybe they sinned, I don't know, but you know what, I'm not taking any chances. I have children, I understand. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. My, my poor mom would understand as well. Um, so he's sacrificing, he's caring about his, his family, and sometimes we see that, that, that it's, it's really undeserved in that sense. It's also, look what it says, it's unforeseen. Not only undeserved, but it's unforeseen. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine. Messenger came. The oxen was plowing and the donkeys uh, besides them, verse 14. And uh, the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came another one and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them. Struck the, excuse me, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Like, what was Job doing all day? Like, he was doing what he normally did. He, he sacrificed, he was worshiping, he was living as a man of integrity, and then bam, one after the other, one after the other, the oxen, the donkeys, the fire comes down, the sheep, the servants, the Chaldeans come in, and like all this unforeseen suffering comes upon him in a moment. Sound familiar? Phone rings. Middle of the night. The regular blood test that you just go in for a regular checkup and you get a phone call from the doctor. When I worked with the New York State uh, uh, PBA, one morning on my way up to work, I get a phone call from the state police. Uh, they were looking for someone that worked with me since we we're a police organization. They got a hold of me because of my position there and uh, wanted to know if, if my brother, one of, the, one of the officers there, uh, was at work. And I said, well, I'm on my way. I'm assuming he is. He said, okay, because his daughter was driving up the thruway in an ice storm, tracked the trailer, jumped the guardrail, and crushed her. I had to go to work and tell him. Coming to work? 
Drove right past it, saw the accident. Hmm. Happens. Happened to many of you. Things have happened to me. It's sometimes undeserved, sometimes it's unpredictable, unforeseen. No one in this room knows what tomorrow will bring, this afternoon will bring. Suffering is unforeseen, undeserved. Sometimes suffering is unconceivable. Look at verse 18. Your sons and daughters were feasting, Job, drinking wine. The oldest house came when suddenly a mighty, a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed. They're dead. They're dead. Folks, this is not a horror movie. This is not a science fiction. It's not a legend. It's not folklore. It's real life. This is the life of Job. Think about that. All your seven children died. If that's not bad, Job chapter 2, verse 7. When Satan came out from the presence of the Lord, struck Job with loathsome sores from the side of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery, chapter 2, verse 7, which, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. I've had some poison ivy I wanted to do that with, actually recently. But this is in the midst of all the suffering. Look at verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20. No, excuse me, uh, chapter 1 again, verse 20. And I don't want to gloss over this. He hears about the children dying, verse 20. And Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Job did not get up and say, count it all. Joy, I'm smiling. This is great. God is sovereign. I know that. And this is just going to be a wonderful day. That's why it drives me crazy with guys like Joel Osteen. Put a big smile on your face. Click your heels twice. You'll be home. Like, really? Can, can, can I give you five minutes of my life? Can, can I tell you, give me an hour to tell you what, what ministry has brought into my life and what, what people suffer? Just for two minutes, please. And then stop smiling so loud. You know, it's like God is not glorified when we stuff our pain. God is not glorified or honored when we try to cover up our grief and pretend like pain is not real. He's tearing his robes. He's weeping. He's broken. But he doesn't dishonor the Lord. Job makes it clear that he doesn't dishonor the Lord. He doesn't sin against God by cursing him and speaking evil of him, although his wife tells him, curse God and die. Job refused. And what I love about the Scriptures is it's so brutally honest. It's not make-believe fairy tale. He was broken. He ripped his robes a sense of, of excruciating suffering and sorrow and agony. People walk through suffering. The Scriptures is clear. Job was suffering. He felt it. Some of you have felt it deeply. Now look at the sovereignty of God. Back in Job. Do you know 30 times in the book of Job, the name of God is El Shaddai, Almighty, which points to His omnipotence, His all-sufficient power and His sovereignty. Now let's just a few things I want to point out why God is sovereign in this book. The right to reign, to rule over His creation. Look at verse 1 of chapter uh, of Job. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 6 of, of Job 1. God is sovereign over angels. Now there was a day when the sons of God came, sons of God in that passage is talking about angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. 
Psalm 103 says, Blessed, Bless the Lord, O you angels, the mighty ones who do His Word, obeying His voice. Right now, as we're here in this room, there's mighty angels that are serving and obeying and following the commands and the decrees of God. He's sovereign over them. He's not only sovereign over angels, He's sovereign over demons. He says, and Satan also came among them. God is surrounded by angels and God is sovereign over Satan. And, we, and, and, and I'm not sure where you are, but I'm going to tell you what the Scriptures teach. The Bible teaches that demons and Satan is real. It's not a fairy tale. Both the Old Testament and Jesus Himself confirms that truth. Jesus mentions them often. He was tempted by them in the wilderness. He takes authority over them, over the four Gospels. And according to Second um, uh, Corinthians and Ephesians, He's the G, lower G, case God, small G, and the prince of the power of the air. And notice in Job that Satan and his demons have supernatural power. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, where are you coming from? Satan answered the Lord, going to and from the earth, walking up and down. The Lord said to Satan, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth. He's blameless, he's upright, turns from evil. Verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? You put a hedge of protection around him. And his house and all that he has on every side is before everything happened. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. But, Satan says, stretch out your hand. Satan is telling God, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand, him physically. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And we know what happens next. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, he's before the Lord. Verse 3. He tells him, he holds on to integrity because you, you protected him. Verse 4. Satan answers the Lord and says, skin for skin, all that he has, give you for his life. All that a man has, he will give for his life. That's what the, the enemy says. But stretch out your hand and touch his bones and his flesh. He'll curse you face to face. Take everything he has. That happened. Now he says, touch him. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. Satan went out in the presence of the Lord, struck Job with sores, uh, and the sole of his foot to the head of his crown, top to bottom, filled with sores. Now notice something, family. Listen. Although Satan is portrayed as having supernatural power, he does not have omnipotent power. He does not have omnipotent power. The power that God, the power that Satan and his demons are clearly limited, what is it limited by? The consent, the approval, and the prerogatives of God. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that Satan can do apart from permission of God. Satan is on one of those retractable dog leashes. He'll go out until I press that button, only but so far, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, I'll make that decision. Satan may be the direct cause here and the instigator, but there's an ultimate cause. God is sovereign over demons. God is sovereign over Satan. God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere. We don't have time to get into this, but what you'll see if you read Job 1 and 2, he's also sovereign over nations. It was the Chaldeans that came in by three bands that took everything. Uh, Job chapter 12 said, God raises up nations and destroys nations. When I read that this week, I thought, you know what? We're in a crazy world right now. God is sovereign over Iraq. 
God is sovereign over crazy Kim Jong-un from North Korea, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, uh, Putin, uh, Obama. God is sovereign over the United States, over China, Afghanistan. He is sovereign over all nations. He is sovereign over nature. All the disasters we see in the book, God is sovereign over and ordained and, and allowed to take place and gave permission to do. We see that in the book of Job. We saw that in the book of Genesis. Jesus stands up in a boat and tells the wind to lay down and the sea to be quiet, and they obey immediately. He's sovereign over nature. When Job in chapter 20, uh, excuse me, 38, God finally speaks like, where were you when I had the clouds made? Where were you when I put water in there? Where were you when I threw my lightning bolts? Like, Job's like, uh, I, I can't answer that. The other day I was watching television and I, as I'm preparing for the sermon. Um, the, the, you had that hot weather, that great hot weather. But anyway, and, and, and one of the reporters said, we're going to turn now to so-and-so. He's going to give us the weather update. And let me tell you, if it's going to keep being hot, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I thought, what does that guy have anything to do with the weather? Like she knew that, but she was just, I'm like, you know what? God controls the weather. When the Bible talks about rain, it says God let the rain down. So God is sovereign over all things. He's also sovereign over disease. And some of us need to hear that today. Yeah, yeah, Satan was given some power, but God is ultimately over and sovereign over everything. Cancer, heart disease, neurological issues, lung disease. God is sovereign, not Satan. And not just disease, over death. Satan is called the liar, the accuser, the murderer from the beginning. But let me tell you something. God is sovereign over life and death, not Satan. Not demons, not evil spirits. Deuteronomy 32. See that? See now that I am, even I, there's no God beside me, God talking. I kill, I make alive, I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. First Samuel 2, the Lord kills, brings to life, He brings to show all and He rises up. Ultimately, God is sovereign over everything. No God, small g, no demons, no Satan can snatch person out of, of God's hands. Listen to these verses, okay? I just want you to listen. Daniel 4.35 God does according to His will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Isaiah 46 Remember the former things of old. I am God, there is no other. There is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient days, things that not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purposes. Lamentations 3. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? It is not from the mouth of the Most High God that good and bad come. Proverbs. Many are the plans in the minds of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever it wills. Our God is in heaven. He does all that He pleases. Ephesians 1. In Him we have obtained inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things out to the, according to the counsel of His will. God is sovereign over disease, over death, over life. God is even sovereign over blessings. If you read the book of Job, He says, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Job at the end of the books receives blessing. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not trouble? He's sovereign over the whole thing. 
Everything is under the sovereignty of God. He recognized that. Nature, nations, demons, Satan, health, disease, life, death, under the sovereignty of Almighty God. What's the implications? What's the implications? Number one, God's sovereignty is not without purpose, family. God's sovereignty is not without purpose. The picture of Job 1 and 2 is not God waking up going, Oh my word, there's all this evil. What am I going to do? I'll just acquiesce and somehow try to work things out. You don't see that in Job. You don't see that in the Bible. God does not take pleasure in evil. He's a good, awesome God. But neither is the the sin and the evil of people wasted outside the control and purposes of God. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Who initiates this whole scheme? It was God. Have you seen my servant Job? Have you seen him? Yeah, there's a work of Satan going on, but ultimately it's the work of God. And you're like, really? Yeah. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, we just finished. In the historical background of writing that letter, 1 2 Peter, when he wrote that letter, he was in Rome, right? Remember? Who is, who, is, who is emperor? Nero. He's crazy. He'd be lighting people on fire just so you could see the road coming in. He'd wrap you in skin clothing, uh, you know, a dead animal, wrap you in the skin and throw you to the lions. Who's sovereign over Nero? We just read it. And yet, 1 Peter chapter 3, he writes, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Whose will is that? Is it for God's will. In 1 Peter 5.8, he warns the church, like, not only is Nero going to attack you, but it says Satan is, 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 is running around like a roaring lion, looking someone to devour. They're under all kinds of suffering. But Peter says in his book, and we just went through this, in the opening and the closing, the two bookmarks at the, at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, he writes, in this rejoice in your salvation, this is what I want you to rejoice, in a little while, you're suffering if necessary. You're grieved by all kinds of various trials and difficulties so that, his purpose, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of the coming of Jesus Christ. Your suffering is purifying you to show and to bring forth honor and glory to Jesus. So when we have that worldview, which we talked about, that perspective that that God is working in my life for His glory and my good, we can find joy in the midst of suffering. That's the beginning. The end is what it says. Chapter 5, verse 10. May the God of all grace call you to His eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, He Himself will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. You catch that? He will firm, give you firmness. He will give you strength. He will give you steadfast so that we may be found to result in the praise and the glory of God. You know, there's an awakening of grace. There's this, there's this awakening, and I'm doing suffering in my own life. There's an awakening of grace to the sufficiency of Christ's finished work on the cross in the bona fide desperation of suffering. When we lean on Him, and it's released through the power and the grace of the gospel through suffering. God's sovereign purpose in our suffering are means to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory and the exaltation of Christ. 
Folks, that's the gospel. God did not just permit Jesus to go to the cross. He purposed it. He did not just allow it. He designed it. He did not just sit back when they were beating Jesus, whipping Jesus, ripping his beard, crucifying him on a cross and go, all right, if, if, that's, what you, you know, if that's what you must do, I think I'll let that happen. No. It was the very purpose of God for our salvation out of his love for us that he would allow his son to be crucified for our sins and rise victorious over death. God has a purpose in our suffering. Not only is it to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, not only is it so that we could dig, dig deeper into the grace of God, being conformed to the image of His Son, relying upon the Holy Spirit for comfort, but the Bible says that suffering for the church, the Bible and history says that that's how the gospel was spread. Suffering causes us also to look at sin in our own lives. You know, it, seeing the wicked, seeing brokenness in the world reminds me, every time I see it, it's like, we're in a broken world. People shooting people, people killing people, tsunamis, all that stuff. It's a broken world. It reminds me how much Jesus had to come and redeem this world. All of creation will be redeemed by Christ. We live in such a broken world. Sin causes us to look at our sin. It causes, you know what else suffering does? And if you suffered long and you suffered hard, you know. You know that it helps us release the grip of this world. We see, we see the transientness of this world. We, we see the, the futility of holding on to the things that are going to disappear someday. And suffering is also a delicate instrument in the hands of God for our joy and His glory. Let me tell you what makes God look glorious. Let me tell you what makes God look beautiful in your life. When in the darkest hour, the most arduous pain the deepest anguish, the excruciating hardship, you declare, God is enough. He is good. He loves me. He will care for me. He will provide for me. He will get me through this. Whom I have in heaven but you. There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. That makes God look glorious. God has a purpose in our suffering. Number two, the true understanding of, our, of, of sovereignty of God ends in worship. Look, at, look what he says. Chapter 1, verse 20 again. When Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, fell on the ground, and what, family? Worship. This is deep pain, arduous loss. He's worshiping. Are you kidding me? Well, it's like almost unbelievable. Everything he has, his children... He's worshiping. How does he do that? The Lord gave, the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God's sovereignty over the world. That's my worldview. He's sovereign over everything. The Lord gives, the Lord take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's affirming the sovereignty of God. He looks past the causes, the secondary causes, and looks at the eyes of faith and sees it from the hand of the Lord and he springs, boards into worship. I mean, you may be thinking, I, well, I still have that report. I still have that doctor's visit. I still have my heart torn in pain. But I think Job found comfort in knowing that evil is not sovereign. God is. That suffering and pain and everything is not sovereign. God is. There was a comfort for, for Job resting in the sovereignty of God. 
Sometimes we go through hard times and arduous times and difficult times. I'm not saying that we should spout off that. You know, something drastic happens, we want to come alongside, you know, God work all things out. You know, some people just need to be loved and need to be cared for and need to, to feel the hurt and the pain and just walking through them, not saying a word, crying with them. I, I, you know, I get that. I, that that's, what, that's what they need. But when you're suffering, you, you don't got a lot of assurance. There's not a lot of peace, right, in the thought that Satan's in control, that evil one. Like, there's not a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot of comfort in that. Sometimes, in suffering and in hardship, we do, like Job's wife, we curse God. He says, you're talking like a foolish woman. That's what Job says to his wife. The word foolish is the word used in Psalms and Proverbs, excuse me, in Psalms, where he says, only a fool says in their heart, there is no God. Only a fool says in their heart, there is no God. And sometimes we want to curse and blaspheme God and the character of God. And we go to that place sometimes because we see the pain and the hurt of our loved ones. And immediately we want to, we want to start pointing a finger to God that you can't even exist. Or, or you're not loving or you're not powerful. And, and listen carefully. Don't get to that place. I'm convinced by the eyes of faith of what this Bible has to say with me. Whether I understand it or not, God is good all the time. He is loving all the time. There's not one ounce, there's not one shred of evil in God at all. He does not become dirty. He does not become evil because he's sovereign over it. That's what the Bible clearly tells us. And I'm not going to blaspheme. I'm going to encourage you not to blaspheme the character of God and say he does. Now, wrestling with that is one thing. Cursing God is another. Everyone wrestles through it. I wrestle through it. Job recognized something very importantly, that God was with him. Job worshipped God. He didn't abandon God. He didn't say that God abandoned him. He's trying to sort things out, but he did not deny the sovereignty of God. He trusted God. And let that sink in to your brain. And that is the gospel. The gospel is that God entered human history as a man became like one of us without sin. And now, because of the incarnation, He can sympathize with our weaknesses. All right? Not that God couldn't do it. He created us. But now, in the incarnation, we see Jesus, God Himself, come into human history and suffer for us. Dorothy Sayers' famous quote, she says, For whatever reason God chose to make people as they are, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, God at least had the honesty and courage to take His own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst, the pains of horror and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. And, listen to what she says, when he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty, died in disgrace, and thought it all worthwhile. One thing we know, we may not know a whole lot about suffering. One thing we know, God understands. And God is with us. Because Jesus Christ came into human history and suffered very, very, very hard life. And was crucified for it. He's not only with us, sympathizing with our weaknesses and our suffering. Let me tell you, family, He's for us. God is good to His children. 
He is for us. There's a lot of verses we could talk about, but I want to do this. I want to wrap this up. And I want to mention six things as we close. Six things uh, um, that, that Piper and other guys talk about. The glory of God in suffering. All the things that we accomplished or that He accomplished for us. His suffering, what accomplished for us. There are six things. Now listen to this quickly. Number one, the suffering of Christ on our behalf was the fact that Christ absorbed the wrath that we deserve. And that was done through suffering. Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us all. Romans 5. We've been justified by faith in His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That wrath that should fall on us fell on Jesus. And He suffered so that we can be Forgiven of our sins. And in the deepest, darkest pain imaginable. Family, listen, I know it's getting late. Give me a couple more minutes. In the deepest, darkest pain imaginable, there must be the reality that the evil and the pain and the suffering that we are going through now does not compare to the eternal suffering and torment, wrath and damnation that I deserve that was put on Jesus' back on the cross. For your sins. So that you could be forgiven, that you could be loved, that you could be redeemed, that you could be accepted by God. Jesus bore our sin, our wrath on the cross, and it was through suffering. Number two, Christ bore our sins and purchased our forgiveness through suffering. He himself, Peter writes, bore our sins on his body in the tree. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our sins, he was crushed for our iniquities. The sin, the guilt was on Jesus. He died so that we can be forgiven and it was done through suffering. The Bible says, number three, Christ provided a perfect righteousness for us because He suffered. Romans 5.17 As one man entered the world uh, and trespasses came through Adam, the righteous gift was given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not our performance, it's not our record, it's Jesus' righteousness. That was done through His death. Number four, Christ's death defeated death. Oh, where is your sting? Paul cries out in Corinthians, where, oh, death is your victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? He says the sting is death and the power is sin of the law, but thanks be to God, he's given us victory through Jesus Christ. So it was the suffering of Jesus that bore our wrath, forgives us of our sins, gives us a righteousness, defeats death. Number five, the death of Jesus Christ and the suffering that he accomplished for us defeats Satan. <laughs> Colossians 2. The record of our debts against us, all our sins, he set aside, he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. The only thing the devil can do is to keep you from having your sins forgiven. Don't let that happen. Jesus went to the cross for our sins, took our wrath, defeated death, disarmed Satan, and number six, finally, Christ will bring us finally to God. 1 Peter 3.18, I love this verse. Christ suffered, suffered. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The ultimate achievement of the cross is not freedom from our sicknesses, but fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. This is what we were made for. 
seeing and savoring and loving and treasuring and, 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 and worshiping and glorifying God. And that grace only came through suffering. See, all these things come together at the cross of Calvary. There's grief, there is suffering, there's real pain at the cross. God was in control of every detail, every detail. Satan is conquered. Jesus rises from the grave. He's risen as the exalted King of kings, Lord of lords, who says to every woman, every man who trusts in Him, as you walk through suffering, the one day it's going to end, guarantee. There'll be a new heavens, there'll be a new earth, there'll be no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more disease, no more disasters, no more injustice, no more rapes, no more murders, Christ will reign and rule in righteousness and every tear will be wiped away. Every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more suffering. It'll be gone. All that is a guarantee because God is sovereign. All that's a guarantee because God is sovereign. God knows your life. God knows your life. God knows what you've been through. God knows the pain that you're suffering. God knows what you've gone through and the hurt and the, and, and the, the, the life that you have. God knows. And if you've never trusted Christ and rest in His sovereignty, do so today. Jesus died and suffered for you because He loves you. He loves me. He bore our sins. He rose from the grave. Victorious over sin, hell, and death. And he calls out to you to turn to him and trust him. If you've never done that, today's the day. Turn your life to Jesus Christ. Yield to him. Trust him for your sins. Believe he died and rose again. But some of you have trusted Christ. You love Jesus. But there's something you're still holding on to. There, there's, there's the idea that if I can't figure it all out, I'm not going to trust I'm not, and and it's, with, it's holding you back from worship. It's holding you back from complete reliance. It's holding you back on letting go. And, and you, because you want something that maybe still be a mystery. I want to encourage you as the band comes up to let that go. As we sing and as we worship, you may not get your answer in this life. It may be in a week. It could be in a month. It could be in a year. It could never come. Don't let that stop you from trusting God in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering knowing that the greatest suffering in all the world was Jesus Christ who did it on your behalf so that you can be adopted into His family, reconciled in love, and cherished through the cross. Let's pray. Father, there are a lot of things we don't understand. And some things we do. And Lord, we know in our own hearts that we want to be Lord and Saviors of our own lives and we want to let that go. And Father, we want to trust You in the midst of our pain and suffering, knowing that You are not only with us, but You are for us because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, the greatest need that we have is forgiveness of sins. No matter what pain, no matter what hardship, no matter what struggles, no matter what difficulties that we have gone through, it does not compare to Jesus. I'm trying to make light of it, Lord. I've I've struggled myself. But help us to have a worldview, a biblical worldview, trusting You. That You are sovereign over it. That the end is not the end until Jesus Christ comes back and makes everything that's broken fixed. Help us to worship You by letting go, by trusting You 
in your goodness, in your sovereignty, in our lives, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.